Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director for Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. Today, we have another specialized edition of the podcast as we're dropping in on the first Monday's presentation about voting rights and the 2020 election. Now, if you've never heard about First Mondays, it's a special discussion program about current business and political events through a legal lens. And it's hosted by two of our professors, Professor Pat Rahan and then Professor Ted DeBarbieri. And this week, they are talking with Gilda Daniels, who's an associate professor from the University of Baltimore School of Law. And they're going to be talking about voting rights Of course, with the election coming up in a couple of weeks, a very on-topic presentation in this one. If you want to follow more about First Mondays or get information about any of that stuff, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And if you want previous episodes of the podcast where we talk about all these kind of events and much more, follow us on any of the major podcast services or on our SoundCloud account. Enough from me, though. Let's get over and drop in on First Mondays. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first Monday, first Monday of this year. Uh, Professor Barbieri and I began this program last year, and we're thrilled that we've been renewed for our second season. And this is the inaugural meeting of our second season. And it's so appropriate that it be held on the first Monday of October. As most of you know, the first Monday of October is the official opening of the term of the United States Supreme Court. And this term, for the first time in 17 years, the beloved Ruth Bader Ginsburg will not be present for the opening of the court. If we were sitting there, we would be looking at a bench, which would be have her seat immediately to the right of the Chief Justice shrouded in black. And we, both Professor DeBarbieri and I, I want very much to dedicate this particular first Monday to her service, to her legacy, and to her to her memory. So first Mondays were started because we thought about how easy it is for students in particular, but for all of us as lawyers, to sort of get lost in the in the detail of the law and to, to focus in on the law apart from the broader societal, cultural, and political issues. And more importantly, because of the, our constant influx of news, to be hit with the political, cultural, moral, social issues of our time, separated from the legal overlay. So the idea of First Mondays was to give a legal overlay to the, to the current issues of the day. And of course, our subject for today is probably the most, uh, most uh, important current issues of the day. Our idea is to shed as much light and as little heat. These sessions are to be respectful of the speaker, of the participants, of each other, to bring to the discussion the the, uh, concern for the views of others that the discussion merits. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Professor DeBarbieri, who will introduce today's guest. Thanks, Professor Rehan, and uh, thanks for everyone joining now. looks like we have around 25 uh, participants, um, which is excellent. Um, I, so I have the distinct honor today of uh, welcoming our guests. We are very fortunate to have a national voting rights expert join us today. Professor Gilda Daniels is an associate professor at, Uni- at University of Baltimore School of Law, uh, where she teaches civil procedure, election law, appellate adv- advocacy, critical legal theory, um, She has extensive government experience, too, which is relevant to the conversation, Uh, most recently in the Department of Justice under uh, two presidents, both Republican and Democrat, um, in the Civil Rights Division voting section. In addition to to those um, activities, she directs, uh, she's the director of litigation at the Advancement Project, which students interested in public interest work need to check out, especially if you're interested in voting rights. Um, She's the author of Uncounted, the uh, uh, Uncounted a Crisis um, of Voter Suppression in America, which is out by NYU Press, which uh, we're you know, delighted to have her talk about today. Um, n- not, not least of all, she's a graduate of Grambling State University, a historically black uh, university in Louisiana. She, but she came to law school in New York State, our great state, um, a couple hours south of us in, in New York City at NYU School of Law, where she was a Root Tilden Scholar 
uh, focusing on public interest, which is excellent. Um, so, you know, Professor Daniels, we're so thrilled to have you here today. You know, we're, we, we'd love for you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, really anything you want to talk about related to the book, but we're, we're really excited about the topics and themes covered in the book. Um, and just, you know, I'll, I'll mention briefly to students, if you haven't read the book yet, it's available in hard copy, digital, and audiobook. Uh, NYU Press is offering 30% discount. Um, the details were in the registration. We, we also have a copy in our library now. So if you want to access it that way too, you should. But, you know, Professor Daniels, um, you know, tell us a little bit about the, you know, ideas in the book and, and why you wrote it. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Barbieri and Professor Rehan. I'm really honored to be here, be here today, uh, talking to you, uh, speaking to you, uh, not only about the book, but certainly these very important issues that we're facing as a country uh, and, uh, and, and how we faced them previously, right, in our history, uh, and, and, and how we can certainly use history to help us to forge a better path, uh, and hopefully a more egalitarian path and a more uh, democratic democratic uh, way. I know they've only given me a, a few minutes <laughs> to um, talk. I have a PowerPoint so I can start uh, sharing that screen. Is that okay? Yes, ma'am. That's okay, great. great. And, and just I, as, as you're loading your, your slides, I'll just mention, um, you know, uh, uh, participants, uh, feel free to raise a hand or put something in the chat if you have a question uh, for Professor uh, Daniels, and we'll, we'll moderate that. But yeah, she'll, she'll, she'll go through our, her slides and then we'll do some Q&A. Great, thank you so much. Thank you again. Uh, I, again, I'm honored to be here today and am, uh, uh, as he's mentioned, uh, I've spent, essentially spent more than two decades uh, working on the issue of voting rights. Uh, and uh, part of that time certainly worked in the Department of Justice Civil Rights Voting Section uh, as a staff attorney and then as a deputy chief in the voting section and continue to work uh, on uh, voting rights issues uh, and other issues, but particularly voting rights issues. And I write about voting rights and in in the intersection of race, law, and democracy. And, and one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I felt like there's a need to connect the dots. Um, you would see books or articles on one aspect of voter suppression, like it may talk about voter ID or felon disenfranchisement, but there wasn't a place where people were connecting how all these voter suppression measures connected to show us what voter suppression looks like in America. For example, you may you may have see articles that talk about uh, you know Texas and voter ID and it, how it impacted more than six hundred thousand Black and Brown people. But also in in Florida, there's a, 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 a there's a, the felon disenfranchisement laws in Florida impact more than one point four million people. So if you're only talking about voter ID in Texas, or only talking about uh, fellow disenfranchisement in Florida, you're missing that you're talking about, you're essentially talking about 2 million people, and that's just two examples of uh, how voter suppression and voter suppression tactics and how we use uh, law to, uh, to suppress. So that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, and the book is a general audience book. Uh, I know, uh, uh, you know, you all are various levels of your uh, uh, matriculation, uh, in that you're in first year, second years, and third years, but the book is a, 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 a general audience book uh, where I use firsthand accounts of uh, people and their experience with um, voting. But I think it's important that, you know, what the book hopes to do is provide a framework so that we can talk about voter suppression in ways that we can address it. And in order to have that conversation, I think we have to talk about history, right? And how we, in this country, we essentially have what I call this paradoxical democracy. Uh, and at the same time that we said, all men are created equal, the founding fathers also developed this three-fifths compromise. Uh, and, and the three-fifths compromise essentially said that enslaved persons would only be counted as three of five persons, as opposed to how whites would be counted as whole persons, right? And that and they would do that for the purposes of apportionment. So from the beginning of the founding of our country, we decided that we would use certainly the vote and the power of the vote as a, as a sort of caste system and develop this second class citizenship in regards to who can have the full 
range of uh, benefits um, of citizenship. So, at, you know, so all men are created equal and yet um, only at that time, white men who own property had the ability to um, cast a ballot. It wasn't until the passage of the Civil War Amendments, the 13th Amendment ended slavery, the 14th Amendment provided equal protection under the law, and the 15th Amendment said that you could not discriminate based on race in, the, in, in, in voting, right? So uh, it was the 15th Amendment that actually uh, expanded uh, the, demo the democratic process. Uh, in the 15th Amendment, Black men were given uh, the right uh, to vote, and they uh, exercised that right um, uh, to its full extent for a very short period of time. And it was a, and they elected uh, persons on the state, local, and federal levels. Um, you see that in the, uh, uh, certainly during the time of Reconstruction, uh, that the state of Mississippi elected two African Americans to the United States Senate. We have not had um, uh, two African Americans from the South since the 1880s. Um, we only have uh, three African Americans in the United States Senate today. So from the 1880s to 2020, we've had an increase of one because there are three African Americans in the United States Senate as opposed to uh, the fact that there were two certainly elected, uh, although they didn't sit at the same time, two elected from the same state uh, in the South. This was short-lived, this, this, this type of advancement and certainly the, the utilizing the right to vote was short-lived in large part because the states, the former Confederate states, in order to return to the Union had to adopt the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And they took that opportunity as the opportunity to have these constitutional conventions where they would adopt the Civil War Amendments, but they also adopted um, mechanisms that would eliminate uh, the Black vote. Uh, the senators who are, who are segregationists and um, certainly white supremacists use this as a way to redeem what they call this period of redemption, where they were essentially redeeming the country. And, and they felt that part of, a large part of that would be to eliminate uh, Blacks from the ballot box, and they were very effective. In 1896 in Alabama, uh, there were more than 140,000 Black men who were registered to vote. In 1906 in Alabama, there were 46 Black men who were registered to vote. Um, so it, because of, while they had these constitutional conventions, they passed poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, and even uh, felon disenfranchisement where they uh, assigned certain crimes as disenfranchising and decided that they would assign those crimes that they believe uh, black men created, uh, that black men committed more often than white men. And so they were able to effectively eliminate uh, the black vote um, uh, in a very short, uh, very short period of time. So the, the the ability to actually operate under the 15th Amendment lasted less than 20 years from the passage of the 15th Amendment to the uh, adoption of these constitutions, these new state constitutions that implemented these disenfranchising devices uh, such as the poll tax and literacy tests. Also in the early 1920s, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the right to vote uh, for women. Uh, and and there were more than uh, 8 million women were able to vote in the 1920 presidential election after the passage of the amendment. Uh, and so I just think it's important to know the history. This is a picture of Mary Church um, Terrell, um, uh, who was an uh, African-American and activist in regards to suffrage, uh, women's suffrage. Um, but even though we had the 15th and the 19th amendment, we're still, uh, people of color were still not able to um, uh, register and vote. Um, you see, in, even in the 1950s, in, in 1957, Dr. King talks about these conniving methods that were still being used. Um, and th they were being used against people like my grandmother, who I use as a framework in the book. Uh, my grandmother lived to be 99 um, years old. She passed away last year. And so what I've seen uh, in looking at um, 
how we vote and who gets to vote and voter suppression is that we essentially have these 100 year cycles. And although my grandmother was born in 1919 and you had the 19th, you had the 15th amendment and then you had the 19th amendment uh, and she was born in 1919, 19th amendment was ratified in 1920. She didn't vote um, or she voted for the first time in the 1960s, which was after the passage of the Voter Rights Act. She was a black woman who lived in the South. And so although you had constitutional amendments that said you cannot discriminate based on these factors, those literacy tests, poll taxes, uh, economic terror, fear, right? There are a number of massacres that are directly related to uh, uh, black people, ex black and brown people exercising, uh, trying to exercise their right to vote. And it's important to know that things such as literacy tests, while they certainly existed in the, in the South, and there's an example in my book of Ms. Myrtle Pless Jones, who is the mother of one of my colleagues at the University of Baltimore School of Law, and her experience in being, uh, uh, having to, having to uh, undergo a literacy test in Montgomery, Alabama in the 1950s. Ms. Myrtle Pless Jones, was a graduate of South Carolina State University and had a master's degree from Michigan State University. Yet when she went to register to vote, she had to answer in the 1950s, she was asked how many bubbles are in a bar of soap? She said around 100 and was told that her answer was wrong and she was not allowed to register to vote. So it's those kinds of conniving methods, a literacy test and there's there's also a story I have of Ms. Jimenez, who's in New York State uh, and migrated from Puerto Rico to New York. And in order for her to cast a ballot, she had to take a literacy test uh, in New York State. So although certainly it was prevalent in the South and Southwest, and this ex the experience of these conniving methods was true for people of color throughout the South uh, and, and South in, in, in Southwest, and even you see an example of even in the North, uh, there, these kinds of methods um, were prevalent and very effective. Uh, as I stated, my grandmother didn't vote until the Voting Rights Act, passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And it's been called, the Ronald Reagan called the Voting Rights Act the crown jewel. <laughs> uh, and uh, Linda Bain Johnson said that, Lyndon Baines Johnson said that it was monumental. But this, this chart shows you why it was necessary. Well, there are many reasons why it was necessary, but certainly you look at particularly a state like Mississippi where less than 10% of uh, African-Americans who are eligible to register were actually registered as compared to 70% of whites. And they were, these, these numbers reflect the existence of poll taxes, literacy tests, and other devices that were put in place to ensure, they were put in place certainly during those constitutional conventions in the early 1900s that continued to have an effect in uh, 1965. Uh, and the, the Voting Rights Act has certainly helped to uh, eliminate in some places those gaps that existed in regards to um, voter registration. But we know, certainly those are certain examples of voter suppression. I mean, historically, we may have called it a poll tax, but there are contemporary ways in which um, voting uh, is, is suppressed. Uh, and so certainly some, and some of these, these are just an example of some of the ways that are utilized today. Right? And proof of citizenship laws, voter intimidation, voter deception, et cetera. So we certainly have, again, these cycles where it might've been called one thing uh, decades ago, but today it certainly has the same uh, impact. One of those examples of something that's still called the same thing is certainly felon disenfranchisement. And if you've probably been, uh, you are aware that particularly place that you can see how felon disenfranchisement works is and has been or, and continues to be the state of Florida um, where more than one million people do not have the right to vote because of pre previous conviction of a felony. The state of Florida, the citizens of Florida actually passed an, uh, a, an, a, an amendment, what's called Amendment 4, that would have restored the right to vote to uh, those more than one million people. Yet the legislature decided that, it, that it, before they could register to vote, 
they had to pay their fines, fees, and restitution. That was in, in the, the ballot initiative passed in 2018. The legislature uh, indicated that, that additional measures had to be in place in 2019, and, was, and, and this, this matter is still being litigated. So those people who thought that they had regained the right to vote in 2018, uh, today is the date for the, the last date for registration in the state of Florida uh, for the November election. And we still don't have, a, we don't have an answer from um, the court. There's a question of whether or not this case will, will be appealed to the United States Supreme Court. Um, but you're talking about a million people who thought they had regained the right to vote, uh, but uh, don't have that because of the way law has intersected certainly with with uh, race and democracy. Another issue that we were seeing today is vote by mail. There's a lot of noise about vote by mail and whether or not you should use it and how, and, and, and certainly the misinformation around vote by mail is certainly serving as uh, a way of um, certainly suppressing the votes and the, 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 the relationship of the postal service and how the postal service is being uh, utilized as well as another issues in regards to how voter suppression is the militarization of the right to vote, right? How this white right to vote is being weaponized, uh, certainly with threats of having uh, um, poll watchers uh, and, and uh, seeing uh, certainly folk in uh, military gear outside of polling places is voter intimidation. And it's a, it's, and these are, these things are not new these are just these are ways of uh, suppressing the votes and certainly intimidating voters that have existed and continue um, to uh, continue to exist. Um, how do we <laughs> find solutions, <laughs> right? Versus, so first of all, certainly voting is the solution. And I say to uh, young people, how do you? Uh, if you care about issues such as criminal justice reform or racial equality, uh, it's you know, or gender uh, gender equality or climate change, it's important that um, you vote and that we can continue to try to knock down these barriers um, to uh, the right to vote. In the book, I talk about various things like having a right to vote amendment. Uh, it's a possibility as well as continuing to adopt things such as same day voter registration, um, you know, expanding early voting, uh, having uh, maybe instituting compulsory voting. <laughs> but in regards to what the kinds of things that you can do as individuals, I tell people to do four things. <clears throat> Excuse me. I tell people to do four things. Educate, legislate, litigate, participate. Uh, educate yourselves about the voting process, voter registration deadlines, how can you vote, where can you vote, when can you vote, and tell other people. Right? Make sure that every that registration deadlines are coming up soon, uh, and, you know, except in places that have same-day voter registration. So make sure that you're registered. Uh, also, legislate. Be aware, of, uh, be aware of legislation that impacts the right to vote such as, you know, federal laws. There's H.R. 1 that's been on Mitch McConnell's desk for more than 200 days. There's H.R. 4 that's been on his desk for about 140 days that would impact the ability of states to actually execute um, the right to vote. A lot of these bills provide money for um, states in locales to buy um, new machines and other um, measures. Finally, litigate partnering with organizations, working with election protection on election day, lobbying, I might get, might get folk into trouble, but lobby your dean to uh, make election, election day uh, a, a, a day where students have the ability to actually go out and register or work on election day. Um, participate, one of the things I tell people to do is sign up to be poll workers, which so if you can't, if, 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 so if, if, so that it, you know, this could be an excused absence of sorts for students who want to uh, serve as poll workers because in the midst of COVID-19, there is a need for poll workers, um, certainly across um, the country, right? And, and also to register others to vote. 
uh, I want to stress that when we're talking about uh, voter suppression and talking about uh, the act of voting, I don't care who you vote for. <laughs> I think we've set up these binaries, right, where it's Republican versus Democrat and we are so politicized. But voting is not uh, it should not be a black-white issue or a Republican-Democrat issue. It is a fundamental democratic issue, and I think we need to treat it as such, and we need to um, you know, stop dancing around the edges, is what I uh, call it, in, in, in saying this is how we are going to treat the right to vote, and, 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 and we need some uniform standards on how people can access the right to vote and the kinds of measures that are in place that freely give, that, give their, that gives everyone the opportunity to participate freely, fairly, and in a non-discriminatory fashion. I say throughout the book that we have to fight to vote for the right to vote. Uh, and so I'm certainly asking you all to continue in this fight uh, and to join this fight and to do so by educating, legislating, litigating, and participating. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was that was fascinating. I'd like to uh, I'd like to take uh, co-host privilege and and ask a first question, if I may. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's fascinating to look at the formal, if you will, hard obstacles to voting, and those obstacles being particularly directed to persons of color, originally to women as well, but certainly throughout the history to person of persons of color. What I've found so interesting this time is, is what we might call soft obstacles. So Texas, I believe it's Texas, the governor noted that there'd be one drop box per county. So if you have a means of transportation, you're able perhaps to locate that drop box and drop your ballot. If you don't have a means of transportation, that's, that's meaningless to you. It's not written into the law, but it's certainly there to make it much more difficult for certain groups of people to vote. We know from some of the primaries, we know from the 2018 elections that strangely um, uh, polling places in black and brown neighborhoods had fewer working machines, had fewer poll workers, and not surprisingly then, consequentially had extremely long lines. And extremely long lines in situations where people, since it's not a national holiday, People couldn't stand in line for eight hours to vote. Even if they have the physical stamina to do it, they had to get to work. And I wondered if, if you might talk a little bit about those soft obstacles. And, you know, especially now that the U.S. Supreme Court has decided, decided that uh, those certain states uh, that the, the government didn't, the federal government would not review their voting practices. I wonder if you could just speak to those soft obstacles and, and, and how you see them being effective or ineffective and what we do about them. Right, it's interesting you, that you characterize them as um, soft because again, these are not new tactics. Um, these are, so for example, in the 1950s and 1960s, you'd have jurisdictions that would only have the registrar voters open between, for, for like one hour a week. So that they could essentially to prevent folk who uh, prevent folk from uh, utilizing those services. Uh, it's in, important that these all these things appear neutral, right? And and you assume that they apply uh, fairly to others. In the Crawford versus Marion case, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, asked said essentially that that she thought that there was a group of um, persons where we could find that there was uh, certainly uh, that, 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 this, that the voter ID law in Indiana uh, was inappropriate and impacted them such that it uh, created a, a violation of the constitution. And she said, it's, it's for poor people, right? The, and and that, 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 that that should be enough essentially. And she said, if we really want people to vote, why do we make it so hard for them to do so? And essentially, that's what these soft uh, laws, as you call them, do. Um, for those of you who, don't, or who are not aware, um, Thursday or Friday of last week, the governor of Texas said that they were only would only allow the uh, counties to have one drop box. Think about a city like Houston, Texas. 
or Dallas, Texas. One Dropbox, and you mentioned the, I mentioned vote by mail and certainly concerns that people have about the, um, about the um, U.S. Postal Service. It, it, one of the ways that people could uh, 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 address their concerns about the Postal Service and their ballot was to uh, utilize drop boxes uh, in uh, their cities and locales. But the governor says, Governor of Texas says, you can only have one per county, which is completely absurd. Um, and, is, and, is, and is currently in litigation. <laughs> um, to think that the governor is making a decision about what the county level uh, registrars and supervisors of elections are able to do, uh, they, are, they, are, they are making those decisions on a county level. A place like Houston, Texas, which is Harris County, may need 20 drop boxes in various locations. So to say that you can only use one, while though it appears neutral, right? There's only one, but it's only one for everybody. You can, we, can dem we can demonstrate that those kinds of exclusions and contractions disproportionately impact um, not only uh, persons of lower socioeconomic means, but also certainly black and brown people. Because we've seen polling place closures uh, in primarily black and brown people. Uh, uh, neighborhoods uh, and we've seen places that have you know I'm a, I'm a big NBA fan and there's a push to have the NBA um, um, uh, stadiums thank you as voting centers that and so what essentially happens like what happened in I believe Louisville in parts of Kentucky where it moved from I think 650 polling places to one which was the convention center okay you say oh it's one it's in middle downtown yeah, but if you consider that previously you had to walk across the street or walk two blocks to the school or the church to cast your ballot, now, particularly in this era of COVID, you have to not only bring yourself, but figure out who's going to watch your child because they're at home from, from school. Uh, and, 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 you know, how, and, and can you get off work? Because since you're working from home, those, all of those issues uh, certainly come into play. And while, again, it seems neutral, the way these uh, laws are being applied certainly have a disproportionate impact. You mentioned one other thing, uh, Professor Rehan, and that was the Supreme Court decision that uh, made it possible for Texas to do these kinds of acts. In 2013, the United States Supreme Court uh, rendered the decision in Shelby County versus Holder, where it said that parts of the Voting Rights Act uh, was outdated and, uh, and unconstitutional. The, and it, one of the primary portions of the Voting Rights Act was Section 5, which uh, required certain jurisdictions to uh, submit their voting changes to the, either the Attorney General for the United States or the D.C. District Court for approval before they could implement them. So that would have prevented uh, Governor Abbott from saying on Thursday, you can only have one Dropbox, <laughs> and that being implemented on Friday, uh, because if, if they had to continue, if they had to adhere to Section Five of the Voting Rights Act, they would have had to submit that to the, the Justice Department so that there could be a determination as to whether or not it had a regressive uh, impact on um, uh, voters of color before it could be implemented. And I can assure you that this kind of change, and particularly uh, less than 30 days before the election is something that would have been objected to and would have not have been able to uh, be in place. But without um, self, but without Section 5, and certainly since uh, Shelby County, uh, states like Texas and governors like Texas have, have taken it upon themselves to adopt these certainly regressive and suppressive measures. I'll, I'll jump in. Um... And uh, we, we have a we have a, a couple um, uh, student questions which I'll, I'll get to in a moment. But just just want to mention with respect to Shelby County, so that's a Roberts Court decision. And it, my my sense from from the book is that you're really skeptical of of Justice Roberts' reliance on the you know, sort of being post uh, everything is okay now. There isn't voter suppression. So it seems like you know, that, that's that, that was certainly a running theme through the book. Just something to highlight especially for students who are listening today. So the Shelby County case, Roberts error, you know, Roberts court case, 
very critical in terms of allowing this type of um, behavior to continue at law. Absolutely, and 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 the court, I, you know, the, the, Justice Roberts is the same person who you know wrote the memo for, uh, for uh, during uh, when he was working for President Reagan, which essentially says that the Voting Rights Act was unconstitutional. So, sure. I think you know, anytime the Supreme Court is looking at a Voting Rights Act case, certainly in this Roberts Court, I'm a bit skeptical, and even more so now that we no longer have Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Great. So um, let's turn our attention back to Florida. Um, Daniel Schmidt asks uh, specifically with respect to uh, felon disenfranchisement in Florida. There's been some news stories recently, uh, a 60 Minutes piece a couple weeks ago um, about uh, you know uh, w w uh, the the money that felon that 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 individuals who are returning from incarceration still owe, and whether they're whether that's that barrier is still in place. Um, Mike Bloomberg and others have been raising money to assist in paying the, the, the court costs and restitution that uh, individuals who have been criminal justice system involved have to pay. So what, you know, what, what's, you mentioned today is the last day for, for voter registration in Florida. What's the state of, you know, can formerly incarcerated individuals, can individuals with a felony record vote in Florida? Now, so, so to use a technical term, Florida is a hot mess. Uh, it is uh, in regards to, and I think the, the case, the case is Jones versus DeSantis. Uh, and and there's, it's actually a consolidation of about five different cases. Uh, but Jones versus DeSantis argues that the, the legislative statute that requires um, persons who uh, have gotten their rights to, right to vote restored with the ballot initiative. Maybe I need to back up to Amendment 4. So Amendment 4 essentially said, uh, so first of all, it was a grassroots effort. There were um, people on the ground that said, we, you know, we've, we've tried litigation to get, to remove, um, to, to remove this felon disenfranchisement law in Florida, which was essentially permanently disenfranchising people. So it said, we tried litigation, we tried policy, and we haven't won. So, um, FRC, uh, it was led by Desmond Mead, said, let's try a ballot initiative. So they got the signatures to get the ballot initiative on the, uh, on the ballot. And it was essentially would allow uh, persons who formerly, persons, persons who have a disenfranchising felony to, um, to, to you know, certainly once they've completed their probation and parole to um, get their right to vote restored, to, register, to be able to register room. To vote. Now we thought the certainly at the advancement project certainly we thought the the ballot the amendment was self-executing that if the people voted for this amendment then that meant that the that these persons these more than a million people could actually register to vote. The legislation thought differently and said no, it's not self-executing. There's still some things needed need to be done. Now more than sixty percent of Floridians, sixty-four percent of Floridians said yes, they should have their right to vote restored. Right, so we think everybody believes that, but this legislature said, uh, this is the subtitle in one of my books, which is in, in this book, which says, Free at last, not so fast. So, essentially, free at last, not so fast. Uh, that you have to pay these fines, fees, and restitution. And the uh, ACLU and other groups argue that that was essentially saying that there was a poll tax, that it was uh, 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 that, the, that the ability to, to cast to register was based on a person's ability to pay. And the lower court agreed. The 11th Circuit, 11th Circuit uh, recently said uh, that the lower court got it wrong. And now it's a question of whether or not ACLU, Brennan Center, Campaign Legal Center, and others are going to um, appeal to the United States Supreme Court. So the status today is that those persons can register if they've completed paying their fines, fees, and restitution, or if they uh, uh, regain their rights through the Florida Clemency Board. I mentioned Desmond Mead, who was, who was uh, certainly the, one of the leaders on this effort. He recently went before the Clemency Board a week ago and was denied by the governor the ability to have his right to vote restored, whereas his um, um, uh, his the, uh, another person who was working closely with him on this effort 
gained his uh, right to vote. So it's, a re it's, it's really arbitrary and capricious in how, in how it happens. But if you can pay your, uh, uh, your fees, uh, fines, and restitution, then you can have your right to vote restored. But one of the issues is that many of the counties, the supervisors of elections, don't know how to calculate, where to find, how much money. They can't even tell people how much money they owe. So they can't tell people how much money they owe so that they can pay the money. Uh, and for a lot of people, we're talking about like a thousand dollars or less, but that's a lot of money uh, in these in these times at any time. Uh, and so, and certainly to have to condition that payment, condition your ability to register on that payment um, certainly um, looks like something that serves, that is certainly serving as an, 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 an impediment to the right to vote. The 11th Circuit disagreed, but uh, it's in that there's the question of, do you take this up to the United States Supreme Court? With, with all of the um, impediments, the, the, the sort of um, the, the ground level um, you know, impossibility or impracticability, it, it might lead one to have be, feel apathetic about the system and um, question whether the system is actually, whether we can affect change within the system with respect to voter suppression. Um, we have two questions uh, related to sort of apathy. Um, Liz Helmer asks, what would you say to people who have lost faith in the system and its ability to bring about change? Words, words of, um, you know, sunny outlook. Absolutely. So, so here's, the, here's the sunny outlook. So, you know, the, the slide where I talked about if you're concerned about these issues, if you're concerned about climate change, if you were in them streets, <laughs> right, if you were in those streets uh, over the summer uh, protesting the uh, heinous crimes of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and um, uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and you may still be in the streets over Breonna Taylor. Right. And so if you care about those issues, if you care about climate change in places there are in places like um, Georgia in November, you can elect who the sheriff is. Right. If you're upset that the sheriff didn't arrest uh, the murderers of Ahmed Arbery until months later, you can you can you can use your vote to to determine who the sheriff is and who the D.A. is. You don't like that the attorney general. Uh, of Kentucky, of Kentucky uh, the way he utilized or the the, uh, the grand jury process, you can elect the attorney general. So I think I think it's important that we look at all of the um, all of the uh, races in regards to all of the candidates. If you're upset that they are replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg before she's even in the grave, right? Guess what? You can elect your senators in a number of these states, right? So, it it, it you can you can certainly I, I talk about from going from protest to power. Yes, protesting is a tool. Your vote is a tool. You know, John Lewis, who recently passed away, and his letter that he put in the New York Times essentially said to young people, you know, don't be disheartened that it's a that it's a long road, and that you this is this is a you got to keep. Keep walking. You keep. You got to keep walking. You got to keep making these steps. And voting is certainly a very important step that you that we cannot afford um, to to ignore and, and can't afford to to not utilize it to its fullest. I, I like that metaphor. Keep walking. Um, you, you also talk about not sleeping at a dangerous time, or you know, I guess you know you're sleeping at a dangerous time as a cautionary message to you know stay awake, stay vigilant. Um, you know, certainly students listening now, um, you know, think about opportunities you have to engage, you know, the, the, the educate, legislate, litigate, participate. I think that those are, those are important takeaways. Well, uh, you know, and you talked about remedies with respect to um, both the, the right to vote amendment um, in the book as, and uh, we have a question about compul and compulsory voting and, you know, a, a voter apathy. M many of those who may have the right to vote or can vote but choose not to, you know, sort of relating back to the last question. Um, but, you know, what are your thoughts on the impact of compulsory voter voting on, you know, sort of uh, you know, American democracy, you know, possible remedy for, for voter apathy? What do you well, think? You know, I, I, I talk about it in a few places in the book. One place is where I talk about voter purges and the Husted versus APRI, A. Philip Randolph Institute case. 
uh, and, and how you couldn't be purged for not voting in two federal elections. And so that it, this, this, if folk are knowledgeable about, you know, certainly not that if they can, they can lose their right to vote uh, uh, for, uh, for not voting, maybe it can serve as a way of, of, of instituting compulsory voting, right? That people are more compelled to vote so that they don't have to re-register so they don't lose their right to vote. Um, and I think, and so when we look at, you know, other countries that use uh, compulsory voting, there is a question of whether or not that's, some, you know, some people would consider it anti-democratic because you essentially in the United States, you have the right not to vote. <laughs> that if you choose not to uh, exercise um, your right to vote, uh, that, you know, that is your choice. But knowing that in uh, some states, there are only a few states, but certainly in states like Ohio and Georgia, you could lose your right to vote, at least be removed from the voter rolls. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think it's questionable whether, I think it would be, a, I think certainly it would be more of a federal um, law that, that would be instituted. I think there'd be a whole lot, I think by the time, <laughs> by the time that they finished litigating that issue, it would be a, it would be a, moot, a moot question. But, you know, it is, it is something that other countries are using. I think we should, if, we, if we want people to participate more, uh, maybe we have to compel them to do so. And you can also yeah. give a tax, a tax break of sorts, right? And they can, if you vote, then you get the right. There's whole how do you tell, how do you determine whether or not that happens? So it's, it's all in a way of how do we Because I don't think there's one answer in the how we can increase uh, voter participation. Like vote by mail is something that people, everybody's talking about. But you need vote by mail. You need expanded early voting. You need uh, to make sure that people are safe on election day. Um, and you know, you, you need a national holiday, states like Virginia, there's, there's a state holiday on election day. So you gotta have all those things to make sure that people have as many opportunities as possible to access their right to vote. Uh, we, we probably have time for at least one more uh, question. Um, if, if, if someone wants to raise a hand or, or put something in the chat, while we wait for that, um, you know, you talked in the in the chapter on voter deception and sort of this, you know, disseminating. Um, if you know, if you want to vote, yes. If you're voting, yes, vote on Tuesday. If you're voting, no, vote on Wednesday. And you 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 have an interesting comment there. You talk about the the you know, First Amendment right to speak as a right to speak freely, but not to not to speak falsely, which I thought was was a really interesting sort of assertion. And I I don't know if it was central to your argument, but um, you know, it, it just this, this important notion of we feel like we have the right to speak all this sort of, um, you know, political speak, uh, political speech that, that often seems deceptive, but it's not necessarily an, 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 an unbridled, un, unbridled right or unlimited right. So I wonder if, you know, it's sort of in, in, the, in the context of voting, specifically with, with voter deception, if you have some thoughts about how that's manifesting these days. Oh, I have lots of thoughts about that. I actually wrote a law review article and the title of it is Vote Deception, as well as the chapter in the book. Uh, and so, you know, we do have this, we have this queer quagmire, right, where political speech is the highest level of speech, right? But yet we have all this, you know, and people use, instead of voter deception, people call it misinformation and disinformation. And it's lies, right? That, and certainly when you, some of the examples in the book where you have elected officials who are giving out the wrong information. Right. And then, you know, and I think, you know, you also have, uh, you know, information like uh, with students. I one of the examples was, you know, just post hashtag Hillary and then you essentially cast your ballot. I can understand how a college student or a student would think that, OK, if I just do hashtag Hillary and then hashtag Department of Elections, then I've cast the ballot. But we don't, we're not there yet. <laughs> you know, you, you have to actually show up in person or um, uh, use, a, use an actual ballot. So the, you know, so we, we can, you know, looking at certainly the, how, how we treat speech and then, and how, we're tr how we treat deceptive speech um, and how we treat deceptive political speech is something that needs to be, um, some, something that needs to be addressed and uh, make, some, make some suggestions. Um, but certainly, you know, and, and it also have this, this issue with politics, right? People expect politicians to lie. <laughs> but when, the, when, it, when, it, when it impacts the ability of people to access the right to vote, I say that's when the, that's when the line has been crossed. And that's when there has to be uh, some consequences for those, for those, um, 
for those things. Yeah. Uh, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I'm sort of heartened when, um, you know, Instagram has buttons on, you know, how to request a ballot, how to, you know, are, are you registered to vote? How, how do you request a ballot? You know, if you're a military person, uh, you know, how do you do military and overseas voting? I, you know, w will that combat some of what you're talking about? Well, I guess we'll have to see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's also important that people know where they're getting their information from, that we have trusted sources of information. Uh, for example, in, in uh, uh, Virginia started their early voting process and maybe a couple of weeks ago, but I learned from a, 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 someone I was actually on a, another uh, Zoom call with that her parents had received a ballot that, that, that looked official, but was not. And it had already, and, it, 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 and, and so, you know, so the kind of information that people get in the mail in regards can be deceptive. And so it's important. And, and it was it was about that they said that they could just they could return uh, and it could and it, would, and it would be counted when it actually was not. Um, so, you know, so it's really important that people know uh, the sources of their information uh, um, on Instagram because Facebook, Facebook certainly was a, it, it was an issue it was a big issue in 2016 in regards to just having a host of misinformation. That's why I tell people to go to your secretary of state's office. Uh, go to your uh, Department of Elections, Division of Elections in your in your county to make sure you're getting the most accurate information, as well as organizations that you can trust, right? Organizations like Advancement Project, NAACP, LDF, DEMOS, uh, Brennan Center for Justice. So, you know, but certainly the Secretary of State's office, Division of Elections, or Department of Elections for uh, your county is places where you can where you can find out what are the dates, how can you register, how can you vote, when can you vote. Who can vote? What do you need to take with you in order to, to cast the ballot? So don't sleep at a dangerous time. Um, educate. You certainly, we, we thank you for doing that today with us and joining us. Uh, legislate and litigate some, some steps uh, students can uh, investigate and involve themselves in and then participate, right? Mm -hmm. So th those, those four takeaways, um, I guess with that, you know, want to thank Professor Gilda Daniels for joining us for our first first Mondays of the uh, of the new academic year um, election you know federal election year what is it I, I don't less than thirty days away um, so you know thanks so much for your time and, and appreciate you joining thank you and thank yeah. you to the Office of Institutional Advancement for doing all the technical work when Ted and I started we just gathered in a classroom and I see many of our alums. <laughs> from that first meeting. Now it's uh, much more sophisticated, but it allows us to, to meet you and to be educated by you, Professor Daniel. So thank you so very much. And thanks to all of you who attended. Thank you.